0: I'm the creator of Embossed, and I've created this space because I wanted to share my thoughts with you. I wanted a, a space to create webinars and podcasts and series. I also wanted to market my speaking engagements and my leadership coaching skills. My first task is going to be to interview a bunch of females in tech around Chicago and I'll bring those stories to you. More specifically I've been targeting the only 40 females that i found in Chicago that are chief technology officers or CTOs out of over 700 plus male CTOs in Chicago. And I haven't even gotten into the POCs number yet. So please follow me, watch them, follow them, encourage them, encourage other females to stay in tech and be in tech. I hope you enjoy Thanks, Thanks, everybody.
1: Uh, Welcome back to another episode of Unbossed. Um, This is your host, Marina Malagudi, recently joined Instagram as a data engineering manager. Um, I'm super excited today to have a special guest in Chicago, uh, Betsy Ziegler, the CEO of 1871. She is an icon. Locally, and hopefully, like um, in the Midwest. Um, And if you don't know who she is, I'm super excited to have to have to get get her to know you, and for you to know her a little bit more today. So thank you for coming, Betsy. Of course, my pleasure. So Betsy, tell us a little bit about um, maybe who was Betsy as a little girl, and how do you grow up, and how. you get interested into your field specifically, um, which seems like, and then we can talk about it, is towards directed towards innovation and community development in general.
2: Yeah, I think if you, I think if I think back to me as a kid, I was, uh, and, and frankly remain infinitely curious, um, you know, like getting excited about every new shiny thing um, to, to learn and to explore and the, you know, the, the jobs that I thought I would have as a kid range from archaeologist and geologist to business owner, to lawyer, to, you know, I just bounced and bounced and bounced and bounced, which I think is kind of reflective of my career. I, I don't bounce frequently, but I have reinvented myself a couple of different times now in my post- education career and I'm happy certainly happy to happy to dive into that more
1: nice um what would you say to people perhaps that feel like because they have so many passions and interests right like you they feel like maybe they're not focused enough or they're not like experts at anything um do you feel that way sometimes or or
2: well I certainly feel like I'm not an expert in, in anything very frequently but I also don't care about that so I, there's this sort of choice, this trade-off of, if you want to be an expert, then be an expert. If you want to be a generalist, then be a generalist. And there's lots of career paths that, that support you in either way. You know, does it serve you? Depending on what you want to do, you might have to be uh, an expert. You might have to devote your life to that. And then in your avocation or the the time you spend outside of work, you can fill it with all these other things, which frankly, you know, is what I do also. But I've always been a generalist. The world has never fully opened up to me and declared that I was meant to be X. So I'm 49 years old. I've been working for 27 years. I don't yet know what I'm meant to be. So I'm just choosing to be who I am. Right. Which is basically this collector of experiences, both in my professional life, as well as in my personal life, where my uh, metric is, am I always learning? Even if it's not like sitting down to say, I need to learn X, but I'm constantly absorbing information or meeting new people, which allows me to continually learn.
1: Nice. That is super interesting. And um, with, with the years, as you have experienced yourself this way, have you um, sorry, have you became a more can persp- 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 uh, persp- uh, say purposeful learner by design? Like where um, perhaps maybe in the beginning, I can see how even for me, because I'm similar that way, I was more like following every in single passion and now I'm like, okay, what are the next things that I should learn potentially to open up this door or this window? Or, to get some of this experience,
2: yeah, I think it's probably a combo. I definitely think, I definitely think I'm a more purposeful leader. I I have I I think of myself as somebody that lives with intent, who owns her life
3: mm.
2: and makes decisions that I think are the right for me and my family. By the way, I didn't I didn't figure that out completely until I was about thirty seven. Which we can dive into more detail on how that happened later, but um i think that that a lot of what because i'm in tech and because i'm not in one area of technology basically anything that's tech related is part of my job so it's more purposeful perhaps now than it's been because of like like truly a pure blending of what i get paid to do and what i like to what i like to learn and what where i like to spend my time right now it's it's smushed together so it allows me uh, to act potentially with more purpose around that. Yeah. Um, and I'm not, I'm only doing it for myself, like meaning to, to pursue the things that I actually care about and the things that will help me be a better leader of the 1871 community versus somebody telling me you should learn ABC. Nice. Right. Not purposeful in that direction.
1: Okay. Fair. So what happened at 37? Cause I'm sure since you mentioned it. My listeners are gonna want to know.
2: Yeah, yeah, a little bit of a cliffhanger, I guess. If you <laughs> question. So, to the extent that my life has has any cliffhanging moments, um, yeah. So, when I was thirty seven, I was I had been at McKinsey for thirteen years. Uh, not no, not, I was oh, yes. te- I was ten or eleven years into my mm-hmm. career at McKinsey at that point, and the economic crisis was in full swing, and I was serving financial institutions who wanted to take a break from the firm, which we all understood. But that was the first moment in my life, I think, my professional life where I had the opportunity to lift my head up and think about, okay well, what is it you know I've been serving insurance companies and banks for X number of years. What is it that I really want to do? Where am I where is this an opportunity that I can explore? And so I filled my plate with all things social sector while I was still a partner at McKinsey. I did work for my undergrad alma mater, Ohio State. I did work in economic development. I did work in the performing arts. And that that exposure, that idea that my skills were portable to solve different kinds of problems uh, really lit me up in a way that I wasn't expecting. And that coupled with this interest in being more of more hands-on, more of the driver versus the driver's advisor, uh, led me to do a couple of things. Uh, eventually led me to leave McKinsey and, and go pursue other passions, which we'll, we can come to. But more importantly, probably very much in the short term, I was feeling like I was in this tight little box, but Basically, I can only talk about the crisis. I might say something about Ohio State because I'm a deeply passionate fan. I might say one other thing, but I was feeling I was living in this little box, so I wrote down on a piece of paper what I the, the 40 things I want to do by the time I was 40. Wow! And that took me about 20 minutes to write it down. Actually, I say on paper, I really did it in Excel, but that that either neither here they're they're bicycle <laughs> but sort of sort of sort of yeah. part of the story. And then I literally just started executing the things on the list and they were, they were my list. They had nothing to do with anybody else. They were certain places I wanted to travel, certain decisions I wanted to make certain people I wanted to meet. And that really completely reoriented my perspective on my life, which led me to one of my life models of that. You have to act with intent and you have to plan to live a full and happy life because if you don't, you're, all the other things on our to-do list get in the way and mm. it's, that's totally normal. And so I, uh, uh, that moment in the, in spring of 2009, I guess, um, uh, was
1: uh, kind of a, that's a huge defining moment. moment. I love it. I, I, I also have a, a similar list. Um, I think, uh, I have 135 items on my list right now. Not by the time I'm 40, but definitely within my lifetime, I'm hoping to complete. Um, and um, it, it doesn't—it's—I it, don't think is a—is a—is a indication of of, um, of me wanting more, more things. It's just I think like getting deep into the details of describing exactly what it should look like. Um have you ever revis- revisited that list and seen if you actually accomplished all of those tasks?
2: Oh yeah, of course. I um I I used it as the guidepost for several years. Now I have my fifty by fifty and I turn fifty next summer, so I <laughs> put that behind, I'll say that. Um and it doesn't have to be you know, it doesn't have to be the number fifty by by the age mm-hmm. I as I wrote for myself, but it could be any it could be anything for anybody they could design their own their own version of it by the time I turned forty, so I gave myself my fortieth year, so I gave myself to the eve of my forty first birthday to finish it, and I finished everything except one thing, which is that I didn't get something published, and when I turned uh uh, 40 it just was a different time where there wasn't it wasn't that long ago but it also was that long ago when you think about where we are in terms of the uh, individual yes. creation and publishing and getting your voice out into the world by now since then I've been published many times but at that point in time that was the only thing on my list that I didn't get done There, I had to have a replacement thing because I also had on my list to see to go to London to see Michael Jackson in his last concert and unfortunately he passed away before that was able to get done so i'd have a i'd have a sub in but other than that everything else on the list was
1: i love that one that's awesome um uh have you used this type of purposeful um leadership or or life design i think that's called in your organization now ceo and do you use that with your employees
2: I do in a different way. I mean, I certainly I I talk a lot about owning your life. And I talk a lot about no unmanaged outcomes, this idea that you that you are responsible. And every time I hire somebody, I talk about and and I also encourage it inside my own team, which I think was uncomfortable at first, because it culturally, it was a new concept for some people, this idea of understanding what the job after the job is. So for example, when people interview for a job at 1871, I always have, no matter what the role is, I always play some role. I have some function in that hiring process. And I always ask, well, what, what is the, what, what do you think the job after this job is? And people are, I think most people think that's a trick question. And I'm, I'm asking to see if they have, a short term view of their opportunity in 1871 or something else. But I tell them that it's absolutely not. And I give them examples of my own version of that, of thinking about when I left McKinsey and went to Northwestern, there was a there was a big gap. There was a I traveled for a bunch of months in between those two points of time. But I went to that job thinking that I wanted this other job that eventually I wanted this other job and that this job was the ladder into it. And I think it's really important that people have that lens. That that Because you, it's your response. You're the only person that owns your, your career path. You have to have some intention. Now, the thing I thought I wanted to be when I left and went to Northwestern, which was a business school dean, I learned after a couple of years that I actually didn't want that job. But that's okay. Yeah. That, that's okay. You know, it, 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 what, it, it has options in there. There's certainly... The same thinking I did when I took the 1871 job. There's a whole bunch of different things that at some point in time, whenever that point in time is, that I will uh, could pursue. And I, I just think that people, whether you're in your first job or whether your first job is as, um, as a program manager or as a uh, customer success person or executive assistant or whatever, that that is uh, coaching that I give everybody on my team. I and I started at the interview process.
1: That's awesome. I I really like the intention behind it. Where Where did you learn this, by the way? Just to close you know, I don't know. I, I don't know if I I don't
2: know. I I don't know if I coined the term job the job after the job, or if somebody taught me that term. I certainly was treated that way by my the most important mentors in my career. And when I was at McKinsey, there was certainly an expectation that if other opportunities come your way, it was okay to talk about those. Mm. And so it was never hidden. And it was a discussion that people expected you to have with one another. And so that laid the foundation for me to treat, even though I went to very different institutions following that experience, to treat other people with that same sort of sense. And that, I think, is jarring in some cases if the previous, regardless of what the context is, it, it, it is not a very common thing for people to talk about potential other opportunities beyond the opportunity that you have currently in your yeah. organization, right? That's not a very sure. common thing to have be open. Yeah. And my, my, you know, it's not totally altruistic, let's be clear, right? Like, I, I want my team members to feel comfortable talking to me about those things for, for a couple of reasons. The first is, I can probably help them, yeah, because I know a lot of people, and I'm older than them. I'm my average age of my team is is 31 or 32 or something like that. So I've been, I've, I've, I've already lived that part of my life. I, I can help them. And the second reason is because uh, it gives me the opportunity to be have some planning. So if person ABC on my team is is interested in maybe six months from now. Figuring out what their next career path, career step is, uh, that gives me a window to help them, and also for me to plan to pull somebody in in enough time to have some transition period, etc. And it doesn't always work out that way, of course. Uh, but 1871 is a small organization. We're 32 people. We are not the organization that you come and spend the, your whole career at. We just can't. We're just it's too small. There's not enough pathing. And so I've told everybody that I've hired that I expect them to come for a couple of years and then they'll get kicked out um, mm-hmm. in, for positive reasons. You know, that, that, I mean, I mean, they don't, they want lifetime employment. They can try for that. I don't personally believe in that. But yeah, that would,
1: is, it's definitely an anomaly nowadays to stay at any uh, employer for more than a couple of years. I would say five. I've seen that it's like veteran status. Yeah, of course, and.
2: I, I was almost 13 years in at McKinsey. I was almost eight years in at Northwestern, right? I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a generation or two ahead of probably, or maybe even three ahead of most of the listeners of this podcast. The world has changed in that regard in terms of the expectation that you'll have that many different mm-hmm. shifts. Yes. That wasn't true for my,
1: for my, uh, when, when at least when we started working Absolutely. Fascinating topic. I think definitely there's a lot of growing calling in that. Um, I want to shift quickly to talk about um your experience since You just mentioned this. Like, what were some of the learnings? Um, more impactful learnings. At we us start with um, McKinsey, perhaps. Um, and thirteen years in consulting business, you must have like, had exposure to a million different things. Um, maybe something that was. Stayed with you from that time.
2: Oh, I, I there's the vast majority of how I operate was defined by my experience at McKinsey, mm-hmm. um, which I think is probably true for any professional service firm experience over that period of time. So, you know, as as a as a as a consultant, your job is to help other people solve their problems. And so this, the skills that really get honed are around problem definition and influence, by the way, which I think are the two most important skills that people need right now, no matter what job you have. Mm. Defining the problem, being really clear about what it is you're doing. are you solving the right Is this really the problem? or is it some other thing, and that's a uh, you know a symptom of the actual problem. And how do you get things done? Through other people, particularly if you don't have positional power or authority, and I don't mean manipulation. I mean in a positive ways. How do you get? How do you get people to listen to right answer, 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 right, and to self discover that this is the path that they should that they could have success with. Mm-hmm. So those two are the most important things I took away from my McKinsey experience, uh, amongst many others. And I use that, I use both those every single day. I use, I I have been a, a practitioner of influence for, actually it predates it. It was when I worked at GE before graduate school. So, I mean, for 30 years, I have been a, close to 30 years, been a practitioner of, of influence. I think that... Um, the, how I write, how I structure, how I do, how I lead meetings, how I every all of that came from my McKinsey
1: experience. Nice, and it, it certainly translates into 1871 and what it does for the startup world in Chicago. So, I, I, you know, influencing the smaller companies and problem solving with them and giving them the chance to fix their own problems. I think that's definitely something that you translated very well at your current organization. Um, perhaps at Kellogg, I was just curious to talk about a little bit of like, what does a chief innovation officer do, first of all? <laughs> and then maybe um, uh, something about, you know, going from from consulting into academia or university and how is that different? How was that different for you? Yeah,
2: so I'll say maybe a couple of things. First of all, this shift from, Consulting to academia, for-profit to non-profit, academia to 1871, both nonprofits. profits the, the thing that ties it together for me, just to reinforce a, a point that I think is important, is that every day, the vast majority of my professional career, I've woken up in service of somebody else being successful. So it was clients at McKinsey it was students and faculty at Northwestern and it's the it's the entrepreneurs and the growth stage companies and the innovators at 1871. So the, I have found that that is where I get the most joy regardless of what problems they're working on that that I am better in situations where my job is to help other people get better. Nice. And I think that ties in a little bit to the theme of unbossed, which we'll get to, which we'll get to later. I, I am, I am sure. I think so. What does a chief innovation officer do? Um, chief innovation officer, we, the dean and I, the dean at the time and I, had, uh, made up the job, and we designed it from scratch. And it looks different in higher ed than it does in other institutions, I'm sure. But my job in that first wave was basically from a strategic perspective where does, what's happening in in the graduate business education world, having a, owning that point of view on behalf of the school and help, helping educate the leadership team around me of what I thought was coming, how to start to think about being prepared for it, how to start doing some experimentation. Of course, the faculty matter a lot. It was easy to do, to lead innovation and do experimentation in collaboration with the students that was super simple because they had a ton of great ideas and all my job was was to figure out how to how to create the opportunity for them to test them with the faculty it's quite different they have they have um, uh, and I'm blessed by the fact that the Northwestern faculty was very supportive of me as a person but also that uh, the intention of that of that effort and I, yeah, I think some of the stuff that we did laid the groundwork for how they responded during COVID. I, I don't. I certainly don't take credit for what they really did, which was, I think, phenomenal. But but I think seeds were planted a couple of years ago and starting to shift that something might change in the world. We didn't know it was going to be a pandemic. Uh, j- just on that last piece about shifting to academia, the things that I was worried about were... The, uh, the body rejecting the organ because I was so different. I didn't go to Northwestern. I, you know, here I am coming in at a really senior level and not having any real background in higher ed, as well as the pace of change being too slow. And neither of those things were, neither of those things happened. I think the first one in part, because I was trained from an influence, I knew how to go in and not try to take over the world, right? That wasn't my job. The, the and the second one was that Dean had a very aspirational agenda, which I was attracted to. So we moved really quickly. The thing that was hard for me was not being an expert on anything. And when and well, just just contrasting that with the point we made earlier that I'm a generalist, not an expert. I did have areas of concentration at McKinsey that I was known for, things like the random, but things like call center and service operations. I was one of the experts at the firm at the time, in the firm at the time on those topics. So I would talk to teams all over the world about it. And when I went to Northwestern, the faculty of course are the experts. So my phone stopped ringing for advice on those kinds of things, which was totally ended up being fine. I didn't, it was a learning that I had that I didn't know how important that was to me in the transition. So it was a gap that I had to figure out how
1: to fill. Yeah, definitely. I can see that. There's uh, perhaps hesitation in there too. And like, uh, well, I feel it as, as I'm more of a generalist in tech, uh, the hesitation of, oh my God, am I going to be able to dig deep into this technology with my senior developer and and figure this problem out with them Um, versus, you know, staying, up here and making sure that they have a strategic vision to go after and goals and things like that. Um, And um, going into the nonprofit into 1871, um, I wanna take it to the current times and obviously what you've seen is the current state of the world. Um, Women are exiting in the workforce, uh, higher rates than ever. Um, How is 1871 doing? generally this year and what have you noticed that are trends that are happening within the organization or within even Chicago?
2: So I, I think someone's doing quite well to be honest we've had to shift our business model a fair amount. I, I, I When I say that I don't pretend to say that it was easy it's been a long, a long nine and a half months or so for 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 me and for everyone on the team and I think for the community at large. Um, So I heard a couple of things there. I heard a theme around women leaving the workforce, but I also heard sort of the broad conversation about 1871 in Chicago. So I'll try to hit all of them quickly. We have about 30% of our founders are female, which is holding steady. It might've been 32% a year ago, where we bounced between 29 and 30, 31. Our goal is 35 by goal, well, certainly it would be at least half, but by July of 2022, we're hoping to we get to about 35. So, and Chicago continues to do very well with respect to f- supporting female founders. We have a terrific program for early tenured, early to mid-tenured female technical talents and acceler- a leadership accelerator program for them that has been phenomenal. We've about sixty women that have gone through that, all in Chicago. So, I think we've got the right programs in place. We've got the right uh, philosophy and foundation and structure to continue to, to support. Obviously, we've got a massive problem on the capital side of of female founders or any, frankly, any diverse. Founders, I just read this morning the article about the female f- funding in 2020 is significantly down over uh, 2019. In 2019, I think we were 2% or 2.5% of all venture capital went to female founders. And you sort of say, well, 2% of some big number is less than like the Series E round for a major tech firm. So and I, I wish I had a, big, a specific example I can come back to it another time but it it's a appalling in my opinion that dollars aren't being the capital is there it's just in my opinion not being directed to the right places and so there's huge opportunity on on that front which many organizations are working on this is not a new this is not a new insight everybody knows this. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have a fund. We don't control capital. We can influence at some level. But other people need to make those uh, choices. And so we're, we're trying to support
1: um, yeah. on the side. That makes sense. And um, as, a, as a mom yourself, how, how have you been doing? Like I have two kids. <laughs> I'm home with them most of the time. How, how have you been dealing with this this craziness?
2: Yeah, it, it's, uh, I think it's been, I want to say, it's like 284 days or so since my seven year old has been in his classroom. Of course, you know, that includes the summer that his last day in his classroom was the la- was the day I sent the team home from 1871 on March 13th. So it's, it's, we found our rhythm mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a single parent of a seven year old, so it is a lot of just he and I and, 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 the, and the dog. Uh, so there are, it hasn't been easy, but thankfully we're in a position where I can be home with him that not everybody else can do. I, we have access to wifi and technology that not everybody else has we can take walks every, I live in Evanston, take walks every night with the dog without, um, cons- You know, there's not very many people. Are. Like, so there's like so many positive things and his teacher, his second grade teacher this year has just been phenomenal how she's led this class of virtual kids in the spring. As you know, it was just chaos and nobody was prepared for anything. And so we sort of punted on the whole thing, but in the second grade, his teacher has been great. The school has been great. Um, they're trying to figure it all out too. So yes, been difficult. Working much harder than than I've had in the past. But at the end of the day, my team is still intact. Everyone is healthy. My family is all remains healthy, and we're so I'm I'm quite uh, uh, grateful. I guess for for it all.
1: Nice. I love it. Um, so, have you noticed anything, anything like related to perhaps um, indication of less participation of female founders at eighteen seventy one next year, or you know this year next year? Um, have you, in especially in tech, have you noticed any any other trends at this point for female founders? For female founders or female women in tech in general.
2: Um, you know, I, I don't know if they're new trends. I think they're the same trends. Obviously we've got to deal with the fact that a lot of people have left the workforce. And I think that, I I think that there are a lot more women that could, the pipeline for female founders and the pipeline for female leaders in tech can be expanded again, not a new thought. Yeah. I think that when we go back to the theme around problem definition, what is the gap? What is the root cause? And I, one of our hypotheses, which has to be tested on the at least on the founder front, is that many women carry with them more responsibilities, or they at least can't, so it could be caregiving up to their parents or to to their um, aunts and uncles or siblings, and it certainly could be caregiving for their their kids. And how do you, particularly in underestimated populations, how do you? How do you give them some peace of mind so that they can take time to go try out this idea? How do you give them a safety net? How do you, how do you support that piece of it so that they can kind of put that in the background and go pursue this idea of building a business? That's that's super hard mm-hmm. and it's extra hard in, in certain populations and, and so we that's a hypothesis. We're trying to raise money on that, uh, from, from grants to sub grant out. So can we help you with your rent? Can we help you with your, um, uh, with daycare? Can we help you with your, uh, you know, car payment or your, your get you broadband access or get you a new laptop or things like that, that we, that if we can, we can't right now, right? we've applied for grants. We have not received any words back yet on this. But this to test into that idea because if we can take some of that burden off, does it release enough space for people to uh, explore tech as a as a as a career as a founder? I think there's lots of other stuff that's going on right now to create more pipelines, whether it's through a university system or not, boot camps and other to get people in. I was into tech because there's obviously no yeah th- there's no evidence to suggest that they can't perform just
1: as Good. well. Men, yeah. I mean, it's absolutely. Well absolutely, I love that uh, you guys like actively, proactively, actively trying to hypothesize on on the problems and and trying to apply for those things that may help those women uh, become founders. Because definitely, we don't lack ideas and incentives in order to. Uh, become those funders, I think definitely there's something about resources that may click in the future. I think that's really good. Um, We are almost coming up to running out of time. Want to tell us a little bit about, and tell my audience a little bit about how to get involved with 1871? Um, What are some of the opportunities that you guys provide for the community in terms of like maybe volunteer or mentorship? Um, and and you have anything else that you see coming up for 1871 at, in 2021 that you may want to talk about?
2: Yeah, so there's there's a lot coming up. I think if you go to the website, you can sign up for our newsletter that goes out every week. You'll we'll see what events are coming up and what other opportunities are to engage. If you want to apply to be a mentor, you can reach out to my team at membership at 1871 dot com. If you're interested in joining as a member go to the same spot. Um, we've got uh, uh, our, our Black Accelerator starting in, uh, first ever Black Founder Accelerator starting in February. If you are a aspiring Black Founder and you're interested in learning more about that, uh, please reach out. We also have our Latinx Accelerator that we participate in with Illinois Hispanic Chamber of Commerce also launching again in February. I believe it's Cohort 7. And we have a female founder program that will ramp up again in uh, late May. So there's, there's programs like that. There's, but there's a ton of other things happening right now. And I would, I would encourage you to use the website, the social media platforms and the newsletter as your sources of, of, of information
1: to keep up to date. Awesome. Um, a few more closing questions for you. You once told me you have five life t- life models. Yeah. Um, I would love to hear what they are. And then if the audience feels like they want you to come back to talk about them, I think that would be a great topic. But I would love to just hear what are those five life models.
2: All right. So I'll tell you the five. And I am thinking about filming... The short story among each of them separately that I'll oh. post on. I haven't done it yet, but I'm. It has been filmed in the past by other places, but I'm doing it. Okay, That's so the cool. first one is um, your life story is the summary of the choices that you make.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And The news, the best news about that is you can always make another choice. Uh, the second is people remember your response to the bounce versus the bounce. So I. When I was younger, and still actually today, when you make a mistake, sometimes you've got a perspective that you feel like it's life-ending, but people remember how you respond versus the mistake. Yes. The third is uh, resist the urge to go underground, which means if you're feeling stressed or you're spinning or you don't know how to do something, the instinct is to put your head in the sand and not and hide. And my encouragement is for people to ask for help. The fourth I've mentioned earlier, which is no unmanaged outcomes, which is thinking through all the things that could go wrong and getting out ahead of them. That's easier professionally than personally. And the fifth is to plan, to act with intent, act as an owner of your life, um, and plan to live a full, happy life. And they all have significant stories behind yes. each each one. There's you know there's more. There's probably more, but those are the five dominant ones. I
1: love it. Sounds like a great book. Too, to oh, that you're
2: is, too. and so when you t- when you said you know what book would you write or want to write yeah. the title of the book is uh and so I did that oh. um and that's the when I give leadership speeches that's what I call the title of my speech um, I, love it. I when I talk to audiences of, of uh, younger usually younger people coming up through male or female Love it.
1: Okay, so since you have to answer that question, what book um, have you gifted the most recently? Or? I'm trying to remember, and they're, they're
2: one or of two, but they're children's books, but I give them to adults. So I give the All oh, the Places You'll Go, Dr. Seuss book, and I give The Giving Tree. Nice. probably the two that I give the most versus, versus like adult books, okay. because I think messages are resonant no matter.
1: The age, the time. Or, yeah, love it. Um, and then, uh, in your opinion, obviously my podcast is called Embossed. I can tell you the story about it, but in your opinion, what does it mean to be embossed?
2: Yeah, I had to give this some thought because, and you and I talked about this earlier. I think for me, it boils down to something I also said earlier, which is that I think my job is about helping other people be successful so I, for me unbossed is setting the the stage or creating the conditions for people to be to feel empowered and supported as they pursue and hopefully deliver impact on behalf of you know certainly my team and my organization but I, I, I think that that's what I've settled
1: on in my own head about what I think so unbossed. that is a great that is a great answer actually um and you know for everybody has a different opinion but i love that answer so thank you so much um so i think this concludes our interview thank you so much for coming and being with me we have another 10 minutes that if you wouldn't mind hanging out um we can spend together but otherwise um i love having you on and i love how integral you are to not only the community the tech community in chicago and also like I was really surprised to hear all these things about how intentional you are with your life. Pleasantly surprised in a good way, because um, I am also too. And so I'm super excited to hear more people do that as well. Yeah, great. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks. I'm going to stop the recording. And
2: my seven year old just showed up right before, right after like, you hey, said, You're not, you can see ahead. You can say hi.